0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I've been giving talks on freedom for quite a while now, and uh, today I thought we would discuss a more earthy version of Buddhist freedom, or what the freedom, or the freedom that the Buddhist teachings point to and it's really a freedom that leads to so much more freedom and it's in a way it's we should be teaching this kind of freedom from maybe age three or four in just a gentle natural way and it's really the freedom of non-distraction just to be interested in this freedom Of non-distraction and to explore it and we can do this all day long we can do it right now you know as new chats are getting put into the chat you know how like the you know the next shiny object and it's not like we have to have a an aversive relationship to the next shiny object whatever that might be it might be an emotion that's showing up in our heart it may be the next chat But it really is fundamental to being a human being because we don't really have any capacity to be competent in our relationships, in feeding ourselves, I mean, even in the most basic things, if our mind is constantly pulled here and there. And it's not that we're not connected, but it's just flitting about. One of the things I've often appreciated about early Buddhism is just the emphasis they place on uh, being connected to reality and in a way it is our devotional object I mean you can see behind me I have a statue of the Buddha and I have a picture of Deepa Ma and you know we have different objects uh, on our altars but really what our devotional object is it's reality and reality isn't a noun it's a You know, it's a a process, a changing process here and now always, right? And so it's not so easy for artists to depict this devotional aspect of uh, early Buddhism. But we should understand, as practitioners, we should understand if we're going to get down on our knees and put our head on the floor because we're moved with that devotional energy, it should be because we're devoted to the present moment. We realize in a way, it's all we have. and to be disconnected from the present moment is a real comes with a real risk right We miss our life quite literally if we're not connected to the present moment. The nuns and monks and the monasteries, Theravada monasteries, they chant homage to Dhamma, to Dharma the way it is. To the present moment, to reality. Now let us chant in praise to the Dhamma. This is how the chant goes. It's usually done every morning at a lot of the Theravada monasteries, some lay centers as well. The Dhamma, right? the teachings that point to the way it is, are well expounded by the Buddha, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation which for me means inherently interesting, inherently and naturally interesting. The present moment reality draws us in. And the next one is leading inwards or leading onwards toward freedom, to, ex- to be experienced for oneself, realizable by the wise. I chant my praise to this teaching. I bow my head. this teaching to this pointing out of the present moment and I encourage especially those of you who are willing to be a little creative I encourage you this week you know because I'll probably pick this topic back up not next week because when we will be teaching but in two weeks of non distraction I encourage you to find your own ways to express some love and devotion to the present moment, to non-distraction, to being connected to the present moment. And to really start mapping out in your own subjective experience that having been lost in thought and now returning, like the you know, being a good Catholic, we learned the prodigal son who went off and was naughty for a while, and then returned home, right? And there's a little of that, you know, where the mind is taken some bait and now is obsessively worrying or planning or imagining or fantasizing, whatever it might be, problem solving. But eventually, especially the more we practice, the mind returns. Oh, thinking is like this. Having been lost in thought, the reverberation is like this. And there really is a sense of homecoming. And we want to cultivate that sense of being present as our real home, more than, you know how they say, uh, the sense of smell is like uh, deep into the brainstem. So in terms of memory, you know, the smell of our grandmother's home, for example, is sort of really deeply set in our hearts. But in a way, the deepest sense of uh, familiarity and home is the present moment. But we have to activate it by being interested. Is that so? We have to check it out. Does it provide, is it a kind of refuge? Is it a kind of spiritual home? Is it worthy of cultivation, this connecting, sustaining with present moment reality? This is from Ajahn Samedo, a Western Buddhist monk in the uh, early Buddhist tradition, Theravada tradition, and an uh, important teacher of mine. He writes, and this is from his book, The Mind and the Way, Meditation is a way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening to the truth. So not a conceptual truth, but the just the more non-conceptual, direct, immediate opening to the reality. And you could say, to the reality of these six senses being known, you know, the five uh, physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and then the activity of the mind is considered in Buddhist Buddhist thought to be the sixth sense, the sixth sense gate, how we know the world, because we do know thought, just like we know sensation, and sound, and sight, and smell, and taste, so we're opening to the truth. That this is being known. It's like this. This experience is being known. In a way, it's only that. It's only ever that. Isn't that right? There's the activity in the present moment being known. And this is uh, anything other than this is being known is what we call distraction. So when you think about that, when we reflect on that right now, like even hearing the talk, There's a difference between realizing that hearing Mark, comprehending to some degree what Mark is saying, seeing the computer screen or whatever, oh, this is being known. No, you don't need those words to go through your mind, this is being known. But there's that sense that this is being known in the present moment. And so when we don't have that reflective sense that this is being known, then chances are the mind is distracted. So again, meditation is a way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening to the truth. So when we chant about Dharma or Dhamma, we say that it is apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation, to be experienced for oneself, realizable by the wise. These are words that point to the here and now. When we're opening to the truth, we're not looking for anything in particular, like focusing on one object and saying, is this the truth? Opening to truth is opening the mind, rather than focusing on one thing. So when we take refuge in Buddha and Dhamma, that reminds us to be in this state of alert attention. We're not trying to concentrate on this Get rid of that. We're not getting caught in the habits of indulgence and suppression. When we do open, we learn how to open ourselves here and now. Then we begin to experience peacefulness. That's what I was mentioning in the guided set. Notice what does it feel like when there's some continuity of present moment awareness. It's only when we notice will we feel motivated to cultivate present moment awareness. Because we're not looking for anything particular to attach to. We're not running about anymore. We're stopping the frantic running. So opening to Dhamma is a way is the way of to peacefulness, which we have to realize for ourselves. We have to realize that truth for ourselves. It's not a matter of waiting around for somebody else to realize the truth for us or to tell us what it is. Taking refuge is not looking for something somewhere, but opening to the way it is here and now. Taking refuge is looking at how things really are, rather than the way we might romantically conceive them to be. And this is the thing, is we, we've gotten into this habit of preferring our thoughts about reality to reality. In a way, it's the root of our neurotic tendencies is we prefer our thought, we seem more comfortable and more secure with our thoughts about things than we do with actually being open to the way it is right now. And that can be changed. We have to kind of cultivate that relationship by going back to it. And it's really a matter of growing up spiritually you know, or maturing spiritually where Because when we're attached to our thoughts or other people's thoughts, there's a kind of naive hunger that some conception, some story, some way of telling myself what's happening is going to be fundamentally more satisfactory, useful, functional than just being wide open and present. And it's interesting. We think, you know, I need a... Define narrative of my life before I can live my life (laughs) it's like the one of the stories in the buddhist tradition from the time of the buddha he used it it's like the house is burning down and we refuse to leave the house even though it's burning down unless people tell us who started it what kind of fuel did they use to start it and where in the house did they start that fire because we want the story as opposed to realizing, you know, it's getting hot and smoky in here. I wonder how I get out. You know, just dealing with what's here and now in the present moment. And in little ways, especially in safer, more simple places in your life, like when you're meditating or when you're walking around the block, maybe walking your dog or something like that, you can just experiment. Like, how about I just train the heart to be present without any need or dependence on a story. Okay, now I'm walking the dog and I'm going to be present. And then what we're doing, actually, is we're cultivating the thought of walking the dog and being present as opposed to simply being open to the physicality of lifting the foot and placing it and seeing the dog and hearing the sounds and seeing the sights. Just the raw activity through the six senses, and the recognition that these experiences are being known. It's like this. Like, let's just check this out right now. You know, when we're willing, now as you hear my voice, when we're willing to just experiment with being present, without needing any words to tell us what being present is, but just the more of the raw presence to hearing, thinking, seeing, you know, just the predominant elements here in this moment. You see that the mind doesn't need to be dependent on any kind of story. And the the trouble is that if we don't get interested in the present moment and start cultivating some present moment awareness, we will sort of be in this loop, what we call samsara, forever and ever and ever. And you know, the Buddha talks about it in graphic terms, like it will never end. Um, And partly, I think, to scare us, to motivate us to really check out the practice of being present. But we do get a little sense of that, how we're drawn back. You know, one of the images one of the images that the Buddha uses is how a dung beetle crawls back to dung, you know. And you might see the dung beetle there on the side of the road eating the horse dung that the horse dropped. And you might have compassion, oh, poor beast, you know, an insect that has to feed on dung, that doesn't look good. Let me move you away from the dung heap. And of course the beetle will crawl right back to the poop because that's what the dung beetle wants. And this is the image the Buddha uses for this tendency of our own mind. Because on the surface, thinking about things, getting lost in thought, cultivating drama, and then being lost in drama, seems juicy on the surface. There really is a gratification to you know, the different spinning, juicy spinnings, that we're in. Maybe you're in one right now, (laughs) you know, maybe I'll ring the bell to bring you back. Like how do we, how can we motivate ourselves? And the the way the Buddhist suggests that we motivate ourselves is we pay attention to the stressfulness of when our mind is in a drama and caught in the drama in a way that we forget that we're in the drama. We're so in the circling of the drama that there's no space in the mind that realizes, I'm really caught up in this content. That's being lost in thought. So what we need to do initially is have some space of present moment awareness, maybe just in moments, sporadic moments, where it's like a drowning person comes above the water and then they are able to, oh, I'm drowning. (laughs) You know, they have a moment where they're not so struggling in the drowning to realize I'm in I'm in a difficult situation and that's what we do like when our mindfulness comes back online and we realize that we're drowning that we're caught that there's something juicy the mind wants to go back to a little bit like when you get woken up and you're having a juicy dream there can be a very strong desire like oh I want to go back to that dream even when things are scary, even when the dream is scary, we just want to keep going back and back and back to that dream, to the content, because there's the heart is caught. And there's a certain, even though it's stressful, there's a certain sense that unless I see this content through, I'm going to be sort of exposed or vulnerable. and And it's just sort of a setup, like vulnerable to what? Vulnerable to not knowing where this thought stream goes. Well, can't that be okay? It's like we can ask ourselves all kinds of questions like, What happens when I die? Or, What's happening right now in Ukraine? And we can know, I don't know what happens when I die. And I don't know what's happening right now in Ukraine. Can I be okay not knowing? Like, that's the alternative to thinking I need to know and then endlessly speculating can be just, I can be with that feeling of not knowing. Isn't that possible to know that I don't know? That the present moment's like this, conditions are like this now, well maybe that's okay to be in the moment. And we're, we're kind of creating this place for us, with our own heart, our own body, our own mind, <clears throat> to be like a naturalist. But you know, we need the contrast, we need enough calm, just like a naturalist studying some ecosystem. They set themselves up, they try not to affect what's going on in that ecosystem. You know, they got their little perch, and they're just observing and listening and sensing what they, can be, what they can be aware of there, right? And, um, and it's that contrast that really allows the mind to see what it's not seeing about distractedness. When we're really distracted, when we're really caught, it's hard to kind of get a sense of what's going on. So this emphasis on calm and tranquility and stability of present moment awareness <clears throat> it can be misunderstood as like i just need to dominate this mess you know i'm going to get my act my mental spiritual act together and i'm going to suppress distraction crush mind with mind and then i'll be done with distraction but actually more to the point the reason for calm and tranquility is to study the tendencies to be distracted to study the uneasy impulses in our heart that are just sort of waiting for something to trigger some mental activity to regurgitate the past to react in you know in certain patterns that the mind has a tendency to react in this is the legacy of the past our hearts, the conditioned nature of our heart and mind, is unsettled. It is the sort of this bubbling potentiality for worry and fear and hope and drama. And this is just the case. So we need to understand what that is. So the cultivation of some calm, some stability, using the breath, using hearing, using the whole body returning to the anchor, connecting, sustaining, as a preliminary way to settle down, to make a choice like, I could think that thought, but I'm going to come back to the breath, or I'm going to come back to feeling the body sitting. I'm going to come back to seeing or to hearing. I'm going to come back to washing the dishes, or walking, or sitting on the couch, or whatever it might be, petting the pet. Just coming back to something here and now, some anchor that is a useful or skillful means to realize this is here and now. This petting of the cat is here and now. This hearing of sound is here and now. And to feel the, the beginnings of that unification, like collecting the mind, collecting, gathering, settling in that present moment experience. And then when those bubbly, unresolved tendencies in our heart get triggered to think, to plan, to remember, to fantasize, to compare, to problem solve, you know, all the different ways we worry and speculate, proliferate, when that happens, then it's going to happen in the context of being the mind being relatively settled and clear. And it will see that bubbling up of the drama more clearly for what it is. Oh, it's a natural phenomena. It's just thinking and maybe some emotion being known, being felt. It's not really personal because one of the things that gets clear when we observe is, that I didn't do that. You know, we see the mind very calm and settled and all of a sudden doubt takes root or sprouts. But we realize in that observation that, I didn't do that. It arose lawfully through causes and conditions. But in a very natural and way. The right causes, right stimuli were there. And then that tendency arose. And we really start to see the impersonal nature of this drama. And it's really important because that makes it easier for the heart. To let it be, to let go and let it be. Because we realize when we're not clear, we think, I've got to get attached to that thought or this line of thought, because I'm thinking it, it's me. <laughs> but the more we observe, the more we see how ephemeral and impersonal it is, not worthy of grasping, not leading to any kind of satisfaction. Like. The other lie that is there with the drama is that if I think this through, it will somehow be satisfying. But you know how it is when we're spinning with something, regurgitating something; it doesn't get more satisfying the more we think about it. It gets less satisfying, more exhausting. And like I mentioned in the guided sit, I think, you know, at some point we're so so exhausted by what the mind. Has been obsessing on, the mind just wants to drop it, but it doesn't know how to drop it. So it has to find another drama, sort of like tag team dramas, you know, and it sort of another drama comes into the mind, and the mind gets encapsulated or gets congealed with that drama, and therefore can let go of the thing that was exhausting and heavy and not really going anywhere. And the new drama has all these. Sense is a possibility, because it's fresh. But it's just a matter of time before it, in a way, gets worn out. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's like chewing gum, you know, where when you first put that new stick of gum in your mouth or whatever, it's just got so much flavor and so much sugar. (laughs) And then after whatever hour, not much left in that gum. And there's such a strong tendency to throw out that gum and put in a new stick of gum. And it, we feel so naked and alone if we just take the gum out and don't orally fixate on something else, whatever that might be, right? And that's the same thing. It's it's a very particular unpleasant feeling when we've been obsessing and then we real, there's some wisdom and awareness that realizes it and we drop it. And there's that kind of momentary feeling like, I don't want to feel what it feels like. But, you know, we think, oh, that's just me without a drama. But it isn't me without a drama. That yucky feeling is the natural aftertaste, the natural reverberation of having been lost in thought. So if we want to clearly understand what that yucky feeling is, because the mind was attached, identified, obsessing, caught up, thinking this... Therefore, there is this yucky feeling. So if I don't want that yucky feeling, don't take the bait, don't get lost in the next drama. Realize that thoughts are just thoughts. And we can have a friendly relationship to those thoughts. We don't have to be averse. We don't have to be afraid. And one of the things you can reflect on this week, and those of you who are able to stay for the small group in about seven minutes you can talk about in the small group, is just to look at these three things with our habits of thinking and worrying and planning and speculating and problem solving. So whatever your particular flavor of thinking, being lost in thought, your predominant ways to do that, to really get to know the gratification, this is what the Buddha suggests, really know what is the juice that the mind gets. Because the mind doesn't just do something that's, only stressful. There must be some initial sugar, <laughs> like in that gum, to make us put that stick of gum in our mouth and chew, chew, chew. So what is it about the mind worrying about this, planning this, remembering this, regurgitating that, problem-solving this? What is it about that? What is? How does that provide some gratification for the heart mind body get to know the gratification because there there is a payoff and then get to know the drawback okay so what's the drawback well the drawback is that yucky feeling of addiction like the mind gets really uncomfortable without a drama and even while it's in the juicy part of the drama it's actually underneath the sweetness of the juiciness is The stressfulness of needing something to chew on, needing something to spin on, and that can be discerned. It's like we look right through the pleasantness of the gratification into what else is there in the moment. We're not repressing or denying that there's some juice. We're just asking, well, what else is here in the moment? When I'm thinking, planning, worrying, comparing, I just want to see and feel what's here, as it actually is more honestly, more clearly, more subtly. So that's the drawback. We want to know the gratification and the drawback. And the more we get to know, honestly, those two aspects of mental proliferation or distractedness, then we can get to know the third, which is, well, what is the release or the escape? How is it that the mind can be free of distraction? What's that mind? A mind that for moments, is not dependent on mental proliferation. There may be, in fact, thoughts, but the mind isn't feeding or dependent on those thoughts, isn't attached or taking those thoughts personally. So it's like someone left a radio on. (laughs) It's just sound, (laughs) you know, the mental reverberations of thought and mental images. It's just like there's a video playing. And some of those videos... Playing in the background, you know, or thinking mind are really like wise, good documentaries, you know, that have a lot of useful information. And some of those thoughts are completely silly and nonsensical, and everything in between. But the mind, the heart, or wisdom has learned not to be dependent. But that's not the same as being averse to thought, or pathologizing it. It's not evil thoughts you know the capacity to abstract and think about things in that abstract way We're using concepts ideas mental images obviously quite necessary and useful and especially to be to belong together right because we use that language of abstraction to connect with each other so we don't need to pathologize we just need not to be dominated by this capacity to abstract, to think, to imagine, to picture. We just need to understand what what it is. It's something happening in the present moment. It looks and feels like this. We just need to prioritize present moment awareness, this non-distractedness, over the almost almost endless mental proliferation. Otherwise, we are literally... Enslaved or caught in these tendencies of mind. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.